Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Tim Remfer, who grew up in the Mojave Desert, earned a degree in industrial arts from Humboldt State University in California, and then went on to design custom parts for Harley Davidson bikes, then transitioned into various engineering roles within the medical device space. Tim, welcome to the show. Good morning, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to start by talking about the Mojave Desert. Uh, I am in Arizona, so I am I'm very yep. familiar with the heat. But what was it like growing up in in the Mojave Desert? Uh, basically, very very dry. Um, you'd get the occasional flash flood, rain, but uh, I mean, super super dry. We would look forward to like every four or five years going out and seeing the wildflowers on the desert uh, because that's a very occasional thing. Uh, summers, very, very warm. Um, you'd get a string of days where it might go to 100, 105, but wouldn't typically last too long. Um, knowing people down there still, it has gotten warmer over the years. So Is that right? Uh, Global warming, yeah. huh? Well, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I think either that or longer term patterns that we don't understand. So yeah, it could either be. one is viable. Yeah. yeah. What uh, What did you guys do during the summer? I mean, I, I know my kids, if they're not in a pool, they're not outside during the summer. Well, it's a little different, you know, back then, no internet, not a lot of computer games. So uh, we were out and about riding our bicycles, chasing lizards, catching snakes. It didn't matter. Or we'd go down if it was warm enough, you know, if we thought it was too warm, we'd go down and actually splash around in the river because the Mojave River actually flows right through the town there. So, and it's a very small, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's a very small trickle of water, but it was still a great place to go and catch frogs and, you know, just hang out. There were rock, the rocks to climb (laughs) on and yeah, we pretty much entertained ourselves a lot. That sounds amazing. So summertime, you guys were still outside playing around and it's not like you. No, that was, that's where we lived as much as we could. And and what were you like growing up? I mean, were were you into I don't know mechanical things? Were you taking apart bikes? Were you uh, playing with Legos a lot? What what was what was life like for you? So it was a, uh, a lot of self entertainment, a lot of reading. Got into reading early. Uh, I guess I was probably beginning to read probably by the time I was five. So um, got into that early, and then was interested in just yeah all things mechanical. We'd take stuff apart. Uh, dad wasn't a patient teacher, so we'd use his tools when he wasn't around and we'd work on our bicycles, keep those <laughs> fixed and repaired. Um, so no big deals there. Uh, but, um, later on, my brothers were older than I were and they both went in the Navy as soon as they could get out of high school. And, uh, this is all us wanting to separate from where we were growing up at. And, uh, I ended up hanging out with one of their high school buddies and he was a mechanic and he taught me a lot of wrenching. And also taught me how to drive a stick shift and a number of other things. So he was kind of a surrogate big brother. And that's really where I kind of got into the gearhead mode. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, you, uh, you went to college. You got uh, a bachelor of arts in industrial arts. And I actually wasn't really familiar with what, with what a degree in industrial arts was. So. It's it's a dinosaur degree that really doesn't exist anymore, so I'm not surprised you haven't seen it. Okay. Um, several schools were offering it at the time when I went to college. Uh, Chico had it. Uh, San Luis Obispo, actually, where Andrew went to. He uh, That was an adjunct program under, I believe, School of Science. Um, a few places, maybe back in Kansas or Iowa, still have somewhat of a similar program, but it's really kind of a lost thing now. 
uh, as I described in the blurb that I sent you, it was a program for um, mid-level management um, people, you know, or vocational education teachers. That was what the program was designed to direct people towards. And what uh, what what are the industrial arts? I mean, if you could just name a few of them. Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty much a, a wide ranging set of industrial skills, whether it was uh, drafting, electronics, uh, woodworking, metalworking of various types. And the metal shop had uh, machining capabilities, welding capabilities, foundry capabilities at that time even. Um, and then there was a large automotive contingent uh, headed up by Professor Frank Jolly, who was awesome too. Uh, and it was uh, controls, you know, so steering controls, so brakes, uh, there's hydraulics, engine rebuilding, all of that stuff. Yeah. It was. Well, uh, when you entered the program, was there, uh, was there a specific job role that, that you wanted to uh, get after graduating? Or, or was it just more of a general, you know, let's get a good base here and then figure out what I want to do specifically? Well, it, my thinking about it kind of evolved. Uh, originally, I got in there because I go, I don't want to be stuck behind a desk. That was my original thought. I go, I want to have my hands engaged, you know, my brain engaged. And, uh, and that's happened, you know, all through my career. But as I got through the program and I realized, you know, this is at a time when they were still really pushing critical thinking skills. So getting background in not only industrial process, but like materials and how to select those for different processes. I saw it as a cross-functional set of skills that, you know, it was, it was great, you know, and you apply some logic and some critical thinking and you could pretty much become a designer and, and or like me, I kind of just walked in the back door of engineering. It just kind of was this evolving process through my career. So yeah, it was great. Your first job out of college was as a, a machinist and a design engineer at a company called Spooth Engineering. And, yeah, uh, Spooth. Sputh, thank you. Sputh, Sputh. yeah. Sputh yeah. Engineering, okay. Yeah. Uh, where you guys specialized in designing custom parts for Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Well, uh, I, w I was wondering, what, what was your process for, A, identifying what custom parts were, you know, there was going to be a market for, and then, B, uh, ensuring that they'd be compatible with the, the OEM components that were already on the bike? So... Uh... My boss, Alan Sputh, I, he was a genius. Um, he's passed on now. But anyway, he started out as a pattern maker, actually, in a shop down in L.A. And uh, he learned how to do foundry there, pattern making in foundry. So he was casting his own components. Um, one of his speed records still uh, stands out at uh, the Dry Lakes down in Southern California. I can't think of the name where they used to run. Southern, Southern California Timing Association, though. And... Uh, they used to, just like Bonneville, they used to run speed runs. And uh, he, had, he held two records for some years, and one of them still stands. But he was designing his own motor components, and he was into the Harleys early. He had the Sportster that was just scary. It was fast. <laughs> but uh, Do you remember he, what his speed record was? Uh, he, well, that was the kind of the unusual thing. It was the same bike. He went out and set a speed record at like 175, 176 wow. and change. Yeah, out on the out on the that is so the, fast on a bike. The dry lake. Oh my gosh! Yeah, well, it gets better. He came back. Uh, a Harley is a knife and fork uh, uh, piston rod design, so the large journal in one fits inside of a double journal. You know, because it's on a cost, it's on a, a common uh, 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 crank pin. So he went back to the pits, 
took off one of the cylinders out one of the rods, put a deck plate over that missing cylinder, and went back out and raced in a different displacement class and set a different record at 125. Wow. Yeah. Multiple records. Yes. Did you ever get on a bike going anywhere near that fast when you were working there? No. I rode a couple of shop bikes, but uh, I didn't push them anywhere near to their their capabilities. Um, But we, I mean, the Harley aftermarket has a very enthusiastic crowd, and our specialty was in a very narrow range. We were only working on the Evolution engines, and then uh, Alan had previously designed, before I ever got there, a five-speed transmission for the four-speed uh, shovel head frames, late-model shovel head motors. So, yeah, we were, he also uh, figured out a custom long shaft, uh, main shaft for the transmissions where he could attach uh, a kickstart. So he put a kickstarter on a five-speed. How did you how did you ensure that just the geometry, the shape and size of the new gear train, the new components would fit on the bike? Because back then, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't have like 3D scanning, you know, to scan the bike and understand in a digital space where everything was. How did you no. get everything to line up? A lot of it was hands-on. And then also, if you're dialed into the, the bike crowd, there's a lot of old uh, French over prints that were out there from the factory. So little bits and pieces of the Harley Davidson prints existed in people's hands across the industry. Yeah. Uh, And basically the lower end of the Harley Davidson didn't change from about 1936 all the way up through the Evos. So that was at least mid eighties before they went to the twin cams on the next generation of motor. So yeah, the, the lower end was essentially the same. And uh, the old ones used to have kind of an ear that came off the, crank, the cam chest on the right side. And generally, there was a generator. And, uh, instead of an alternator, there was a generator hanging out between the front cylinder and the down tubes of the frame. So we made that same cam cover retro to fit the newer um, crankcases. But that nose that stuck out there, what we did instead was we spun on the oil filter instead. So that was an aftermarket goodie. So it made it give it kind of an old timey look, except it was your your custom chrome oil filter body sitting out there instead of the old uh, uh, generator, like on the old bikes. Okay. What yeah. uh, do you remember? What were some of the more challenging parts that uh, you fabricated there? What, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome to make them work yeah. with the bike? Well, I mean, Alan was definitely the genius that came up with the ideas and knew the market well enough to knew knew what would sell. And I was basically, I was the kid in the candy store that just got to go play on the machines and turn his ideas into, you know, a working, a working design. And that was so much fun. Um, we were working with castings and then more often with billet uh, as we got further into the design process. I think one of the most challenging one was his, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the rocker boxes on Harleys, but they, at least in the Evos, they were typically a three piece. There was a base piece that bolted on the top of the cylinder head. And then there was a sandwich, basically a piece, just a perimeter thing to give it some height and hollow capacity. And then a lid that bolted all together. Uh, and these had two gaskets. They leak like crazy. Uh, but it gave enough room for the, the rocker geometry up inside of that, uh, that uh, case. So he designed a replacement that basically had a parting line that was at an angle uh, a declining angle across the engine from side to side, and it had one gasket. And basically, we had to come up with a fixed ring to hold that thing and mill it out of billet aluminum. So all of these 
So the towers were in the base piece that held the spindle, uh, the spindle shafts and the rockers. And then it had one gasket and then this hollow lid that was kind of shaped like the old Englishman's cap where it's a little deeper in the back and then comes out to a flat brim. So if you can imagine these two pieces that are kind of angled to each other coming together to form basically a square block, but they had this angled parting line. It was really incredible. And the reason he did it was that you could actually take off the lid inside of the frame when the motor was there. With the Evos and the three pieces, that was damn near impossible to do because you just didn't have enough clearance to get those pieces apart and then reassemble them. So it was kind of a stroke of genius because it allowed people to work on the top ends of their bikes without having to pull the motors out of the frames, which is a real pain. Oh, interesting. I can see how that yeah. would be hugely helpful. Yeah. 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 It was amazing. So it, it sounds like Alan and, you know, the team there came up with these ideas for improving the bikes. Why, why do you suppose, or do you suppose that, um, Harley Davidson knew that there was some, you know, some room for improvement here? Why didn't they just make those improvements? Was it just not enough uh, time? They were pumping out bikes really quickly? It's, uh, it's a function of, and, you know, this is another aspect. I mean, I got, such a breadth of learning small businesses and how some businesses worked. Well, the Harley factory itself was very uh, reactionary. They were slow to change. They didn't like to change because they thought that they would tick off too much of their customer base. I think mm. that's my thinking. But at the same time, the aftermarket got so huge that eventually they did exactly that. They said, okay. okay. And that's actually what led me to leave that job was, that they had uh, towards the end of my tenure there with Alan, um, they offered out this huge stock offering and they used that money to reinvest in the factory and they created their custom shop. Uh, Harley did not have a custom shop before that time. They created it at that time and basically created an opportunity for the Harley Davidson as an enterprise to pull back a lot of that money that was being raked by the aftermarket because no other bike, well, at least historically, they were the first bike that people who owned them, the first thing they do is they go out and drop all this big money on a brand new bike. The first thing they do is strip down to bare bones and rebuild it all with custom parts. Really? Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. So they realized they were missing a huge business opportunity. Uh -huh. And when they did that, um, I started looking around and I got out of there. And the aftermarket walked off a cliff about, I'd say, six to ten months after I left there. Wow. Uh, good, yeah. good timing on your part. Well, at least I would say at least 25, 30% of the aftermarket dried up at that point. That's a big chunk. It is a big chunk. Huh. Yeah. There was serious um, money being made. So you mentioned that Sputh was uh, a small shop, right? Yes. I, I don't, I don't yep. know how many people that you and Alan and maybe a few other people. What, what were some of the, um, the lessons or the skills that you learned there having to wear so many different hats that, that you've, that have served you well as you've moved on to other roles in different companies? Yeah, it's like, uh, I think one of the big fails I had there was, um, I was growing myself as a person because I was kind of an introvert growing up and, uh, trying to learn how to be a little older, step forward a little more. Um, I learned one of the lessons I learned there is you just can't, there's a certain distance and formality, you know, there's, there's this business or professional distance you have to, uh, gain and earn basically. And once people have broken through that, it's hard to set up. So as we had people roll through the shop and we had some turnover of personnel, I found it difficult to build up kind of like this lead role in the shop. 
uh, I basically was partnered with one other guy. We were, you know, kind of like the, the dynamic duo that got everything done that Alan wanted, uh, myself and Dan. And he had left uh, after some years, and I was there, and I was still trying to manage, you know, various people. So it was it was an interesting trajectory also because uh, Alan, I didn't realize it until later, was that he always wanted a small shop. It kind of snowballed on us. We got up to this huge growth. This was only a 40 by 80 shop, and we were doing uh, about a million gross at the peak. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we were really cranking it. We were making complete engines, complete transmissions, shipping them out. And uh, I think Alan was almost hating it because he was a, a victim of his own success, uh-huh. and he couldn't play in the shop. He couldn't play in the shop as much as he wanted to. He had to be so, the business owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I think that was one of the lessons was like you know that professional distance and keeping an eye on things. But I also learned you know inventory, uh, uh, you know how to you know keep inventory of tooling because I was basically responsible for keeping the mills running out there in the shop. We had two CNC mills there at the end. Yeah. And you were the one who kind of made that transition from manual machining to CNC machining, right? Yeah. I walked in and basically Alan had a lot of the same manual machines that I had studied with in college. And my, my, you know, my, uh, my professor said, yeah, you'll never see this out in industry. I laughed because it's the first thing I saw when I walked (laughs) in his shop. So I was familiar and it was easy for me to get my foot in the door and go. And he's like, he's, and Alan's like, great, you can run this stuff. That's wonderful. And then, of course, playing with different materials because we used to make uh, these stainless dragster cylinders, had no fins on them. Think of like a big uh, spool, you know, that you, you normally have thread on, but they're bigger. And they were a hard chunked in machine. And I almost screwed one up. And these were like $1,000 a set, you know. Wow. So, But, you know, that was the other thing that, like I said, kid in a candy store, Alan gave me an opportunity to learn, to make mistakes, you know, to like really grow myself you know and i appreciate that about the opportunity too so you had this incredible opportunity to work as a machinist actually manufacturing parts that most engineers never have and and as a result you probably have a lot of insight and just you know raw hands-on experience that allows you to design parts in a way that are easily manufacturable especially when it comes to you know machining cnc work um, for, for engineers out there that just don't have that same opportunity that didn't work as a machinist, are there any, uh, any pointers or tips that, that you can offer that would, you know, help us all, uh, be more efficient with our, our design for manufacturing? Well, I think it's, you know, it's an ever changing market too. And, um, ever changing philosophy about how you approach stuff too. Um, it's funny, you know, you're talking about the CNC and yeah, I did that for some years, but it was mainly at that shop. And after that, um, I got better at designing parts to, you know, uh, vend out to a vendor. But right now I've come full circle because I realized that our lead times and our costs of designing concepts and building conceptual models and bringing stuff up to a production standpoint often requires some noodling. So I was actually the champion here at my current job about a year and a half ago to find and secure a manual mill. And now I think that's my way of teaching people the importance of how you design because now they see the sequence of how the parts are made because it's their thinking that fixtures this stuff. It's their thinking that like, oh no, okay, I'm basically 
I'm the CNC, I'm the code, I'm the driver, you know, I'm the one that's putting the, the power to the motors, you know, as far as the drive, you know, to, to make these cuts uh, in metal or plastic, you know, whatever it is. But it's also this tool that gets your creative juices going, you know, and it shows you how you should design and how you should sequence stuff. And it also, it also, when you get concepts, you realize stuff doesn't go together or it's kind of clunky to work on. So for doing maintenance, that's another like huge level. It's not just getting the thing to work. It's like, how do you keep this thing running? Because it has a life cycle. So I think right now what I'm doing with the teaching on the manual mill is kind of one of the best ways of showing people how they should design and how to get around, you know, some of the blind alleys, you know. Uh, I don't know if that quite directly answers your question. Uh, have Have you had um, design engineers uh, uh, make their own parts, and maybe you're mentoring, you're helping them make their own parts on the mill, but have you had them um, actually design and then make several of their own parts and then put them together? Is that how you're using the, the manual mill to teach them, or... Uh, have they not really made, you know, full components, but maybe just a couple features here and there? Um, only a couple of them have like made uh, actual conceptual models that they've taken. Like uh, uh, typically we'll make something for a test bench, you know, where we're, we're saying, okay, can we hold this part? Because our current job, actually, we don't make our own parts in this current, uh, this business that I'm in. We actually take single use devices. We reprocess them but we have to test them to make sure they're functional to their original OEM specifications. So they're what the FDA calls, uh, st uh, not statistically, but uh, significantly uh, equivalent. Hmm. So basically you're trying to show that whatever you've done to make this thing like new again, that it is going to perform and have the same features and effects and performance as the original OEM device. So what we have to do is we set up a lot of our concepts we're setting up for testing uh, or a lot of our concepts are actually how we fixture parts so we can get them taken apart or put back together in our process. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take a quick break here and share with the listeners that the, the being an engineer podcast is powered by pipeline design and engineering, where we work with uh, predominantly medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. Um, Tim, your, your segue there was just perfect into my little plug. Thanks for that. <laughs> we didn't even plan it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're speaking with Tim Remfer today. And uh, why don't we just keep rolling with, with uh, what we were talking about. You're working at Medline Renewal right now as a senior engineer, and uh, your team there reprocesses one-time-use medical devices. Can you run us through um, the process of reprocessing devices? Where does it start? Where does it end? What are the steps in between? Yeah, it's, it's amazing that I can speak to so many parts of it. I mean, our team encompasses a wide range of skills and focuses, and yet we're still a small team, so we are all aware of each other's roles. And I've been here 10 years since it was a lot smaller, so or 10 years as well. So, yeah, it's basically you have customers that you deal with, and they say, why aren't you doing this part, or why aren't you doing that part? So there, a bit of it is market research, and we have those people at our corporate office back in Chicago and they engage us and our bosses and they say, well, how about looking at this part? And we do. 
So we get some of the OEMs. Uh, we find sources to purchase and bring them in. And then we're also looking for them. Or And at the same time, we're saying, well, yeah, we do see those in our incoming stream of products. Because basically everything out of a surgery center ends up in a bin and comes to us. And we have to sort through it, what we can work on. And uh, there's a lot of stuff there that we haven't touched and we have to understand the market opportunity, which is, you know, what's the, you know, what's the margin on these things? What we can sell, can we sell them for uh, as a, a reprocessed device? So there's some marketing opportunity at the front. And then, of course, we say, OK, if we want to develop this further, we get some used devices out of that stream and we start tearing them down. And we see what's happened to them in actual use. We compare those against the OEM devices we've. we've and we have to then develop a strategy of research through the FDA websites to say, okay, this is a certain classification of device. It requires certain paperwork. It requires certain filings. It requires certain testing because of its classification. We have to prove different things, uh, biological markers, uh, performance markers. There's a lot of different aspects of that device that we really dig into and we say, okay, how does the OEM perform? Uh, what kind of standards are out there that this OEM says it performs to? And we use those standards to form up a strategy, a whole development and validation strategy to say and go through the thing basically one piece at a time and say, okay, does it meet all the markers? Can we do it? And how successful can we be at doing it? You know, and just it kind of rolls from there. So there, there are doctors at the hospitals that are using these one-time use devices. They finish, they throw them into a bin, and you guys go pick up the bin, bring the devices in house. Comes to us. Comes to okay. Yep. Perfect. To Even us. better. Yeah. It comes to you. You have this bin of devices that have been used. There's like you know blood and gunk on them. You have to <laughs> clean those devices. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's some broken parts on it. You have to replace the broken parts. Uh, then you have to test the devices to make sure they still meet the, you know, the OEM specifications. They're still working as yeah. well as the, the OEM device, the brand new OEM device works. And then, and then you sell them back to the hospital. That is that more or less the, the process there? Yeah. Well, you, you covered a lot of the major steps. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's cleaning, refurbishing, inspection, and then actually we have to package and we have to sterilize also. So mm. there's also a bunch That's of protocols around that too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you're again, you know, having to match up and a lot of devices we've investigated, um, they truly are what I like to call a, a perfect hand grenade because there is so little engineering safety factor in these things that you pick them up and they'll just about fall apart in your hands. Because they're designed to be one-time use? Correct. Correct. Uh. And they're like right on the edge. So, I mean, <laughs> and this is part of where we have to look at uh, another aspect of the FDA investigation is we look at uh, safety reporting out of the hospitals where they've had incidents with a particular device. And this is all cataloged through the FDA. And we have to look at those and seriously do risk management on our devices too. So that's another huge area of what we do in the background is evaluate the risk and ensure that there's enough safety factor in both the product and our process and the resulting output to make sure that we're like going, yeah, we're confident. We can give this to you. It's going to work. You're not going to have a problem. As, as an engineer, well, even before I say that, uh, Medline or any medical device reprocessor has to understand the device that they're working on well enough so that they can, uh, they can 
formulate the test plan and, and do the appropriate testing on the device. As an engineer yourself, has that been kind of a, a fun process to, to dig into this device and not, not really reverse engineer it, but uh, understand how it was designed and, and mechanically how it functions and then, you know, do whatever you need to after that to yep. reprocess it. Yeah, there are actually, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one way you get to see other people's, you know, thought process and their, their design strategies because you pull these things apart and you're like going, Oh, I didn't expect that. You know, some of these designs are very cunning. Um, and they're also, you know, of course all the OEMs would, love for everything to be that perfect grenade doing it where you can't touch it and use it again, you know. <laughs> right. And it's, it's their profit mar- it's their profit margin they're protecting, you know. Sure. Yeah. And we're leveraging on it and yet I feel, you know, I don't feel guilty about that because we're a pretty green industry. We're keeping stuff out of a landfill. We're giving uh hospitals and these big uh uh organizations uh, the ability to cut, you know, keep their overhead down so they can, you know, provide better health care to more people. So yeah. Absolutely. Right. That's, that's the free market right there. If, if you yep. can find a better way to do something more efficient, greener, better for the environment, that's, uh, that's, that's your opportunity, your right to do so. Um, okay. So correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think that you've been part of designing a new facility for Medline, uh, a large expansion, or at least played some role in that. Um, I would uh, say pretty much every part of our engineering team has played a role in that. Okay, right. Yeah, you mentioned I mean, that you're uh, a small team, so yeah, absolutely. Ones. Well, it's it is a, a design build, so we're very much looking to. I mean, you know, we moved into this current facility three and a half years ago, and we're like going, yeah, we need more room. Wow. So and great problem to have. Great problem to have, but also. Another focus, uh, when you come back to engineering skill sets, you're like going, okay, this is how we've used this space. This is how we've revised the space to get more out of it. And this is how we squeezed even more out of it, you know? So it's this continuing concentration of effort as far as how you use your space. And it's like, it's kind of a, a newer thought concentration for me, you know, or area of concentration from an engineering standpoint, you know, cause we have to make sure that there's a safety factor in there for our people. So they don't get injured working in a space. We have to figure out how to get more parts through there. So yeah, often this, uh, you know, you're in your life cycle, your devices, cause these are stuff, these are items that you're actually now producing and you're saying, how can I do more? So yeah, it's, it's very much, uh, a different constraint. Yeah. So, well, but yeah. Designing a building is a lot different than designing a, a component for a Harley or a medical device. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the, the issues that you've encountered? You know, the, oh, shoot, didn't see that coming moments that, that you guys have had to work through. Well, you know, and this is, this is where I say the whole team is involved because certain parts of our team, including my engineering director, who has a background in uh, survey and civil work also. Even oh. though he's a mechanical engineer. So he has a broad perspective and he knows a lot of systems and he's dealt with, uh, the powers that be, you know, like at the county level, you know, the city level, you know, so he's got that background. Same as with internally, we have to look at the FDA requirements and what we have to do for a device. So he brings that to the table and we have some great outside partners and our builders and, uh, actually building engineering firms. So we have good partners. And we can solve those issues. It's more about 
you have to have this rubber band focus like, okay, look at the big picture and then look at your little part that you're trying to solve for, you know, this whole building encapsulation, you know, like, okay, what parts have to go where, what makes sense, you know, and, and underneath this is all the utilities in and out of the building, you know, all your wayside, all of your utilities in water, power, everything, you know, it's like, and that's where it gets a little hairy. You're like going, okay. And I know they spent many, many hours in meetings, you know, where they lock up in a, you know, a half a dozen, dozen people lock up in a conference room with a video on and they're, they're talking to our partners and uh, trying to develop and refine this building design so that the contractors can then turn around and get their subcontracts, you know, bid. Sure. All this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different aspects to this and I'm glad I'm not taking care of the larger <laughs> ticket items. <laughs> well, I kind a of am. set of expertise yeah, in it, in and of itself. It is. So in this case, I'm getting kind of focused in on one product category that we're changing our technology on how part of our processing. And that goes back to how do we get more product through another one of our engineers? He's a brilliant conceptual person. He just comes up with, he goes, well, what if we have this kind of a thing? You know, it sounds like some kind of secret door in a, in a Frankenstein castle. And you're like, going, what? <laughs> you're like, at the same time, you're like going, well, yeah, if that works. That sounds really cool. And it flows from those conversations into like, well, what does that really look like? Well, it'd have to be this size and this shape, and it has to have this capability to spin and do this. And you're like going, okay, how much is this thing weigh? Okay, I'm guessing around a thousand pounds to start. Well, we got it down to around 500. We're like, okay, that's better. So, you know, it's just like, it's nibble at a time, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So right. if you understand the outside, and we did some testing to feed to the building engineers like going, okay, here's the inputs that we're going to require to get this process to work. And they took, they took that and they said, they asked us to do a couple more tests and they go, okay, now we got our, our brain on it. We know what you're up against. And, and then they basically say, well, what's your vision of how much you want to do and how fast you want to do? And we plug that in and they say, okay. And we start hacking back and forth on design and constraints. And I think it's just this organic process. And at some point you say, Hey, we've got enough details locked down. Uh, one of the things that I'm working on is after we agree on the components of this update, we're actually going to make a scale model and just try it out and see and verify that it works well. Nice. So, yeah. So it's, yeah, facilities comes back to process in this, in my particular role here. So it's, it's all integrated. And, you know, no matter what aspect you find yourself working on, you find that as time goes by and your experience grows that you say, yeah, I know enough about that. You know, give me a couple pointers or a couple inputs. Yeah, I'll run with this and try it out. And I think that's just that confidence that an engineer builds over time. You just say, yeah, I can figure this out. Speaking of, of confidence built over time, can you share maybe um, a, a major success and or a major fail that you've had in your career and what what you learned from it? Um, well, one major fail, what I said earlier was that, uh, ability to try and keep the professional distance. Um, another fail is getting so buried in work and not asking for help that you get in trouble. And that happened in my previous job where a little startup company was in the stenting business, which is class three implantable. You know, it's pretty much your highest level of, of stress around device making because, you know, it's going to go in somebody's artery next, you know, around their heart. You know, you, that damn thing's got to work. Yeah. So, um, 
And we were doing validations like crazy. We were still in the startup mode and we hadn't been bought by Medtronic yet you know, to become their vascular division. And I left some of these protocols open and it was just like, there was this time factor and I got called on the carpet for it. And I was just like, I realized there my big fail was when you get so damn busy, it doesn't matter how busy everybody else is. You got to learn how to scream for help too. Mm. So I think that was my big takeaway from that one, that fail. You know, I got everything buttoned up. You know, we had a couple of deviations. We figured everything out. Everything's good. All the data was there. I just hadn't done the last 5% and buttoned it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's the devil in the details, and it is that commitment to finishing stuff. So I guess that's one of the lessons learned out of that, too, is just you got to carry it across all the way across the finish line. And, yeah, uh, no, no shame in asking for help when you right, need it. Right, exactly. And, uh, and being a manufacturing engineer, you know, pretty much all the way through my tenure of medical device, the focus there is just like, yeah, get her done. But even when you get it across the finish line, you realize that's not it because now you're in the life cycle phase of that product. And like I said, there's ways, you know, you're looking for process improvements, you know, bigger throughput, you know, faster throughput, uh, take some of the load ergonomically off of your operators. So they're not stressed. Now, you know, maybe when they start, they're doing 500 parts a day, you know, an eight hour shift, like, okay, you're pretty done. You know, and by the time you're well into life cycle, you might be doing triple that and they're actually stressing less because it's moving smoother because you worked out a lot of the kinks. That makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Last question for you, Tim. If, if you had to start your career over again, what would you do differently? Wow. That's hard to say because I've been in this so long that I have an understanding of how much, not just technology, but society and, uh, how everything works has changed. Let, um, let me ask it a different way. Um, okay. What what would today's Tim say to the Tim you know back when you were just coming out of college that you wish you had known back then? Well, um, a lot of how business works. Uh, keep your eye on the big picture. Um, it's easy to get lost in details and the minutia stuff. But I mentioned a rubber band focus. You have to basically step out and make sure how your work is fitting in with everybody else's work, say, in this, whether it's an assembly line or um, anything else. One thing is uh, you might spot somebody else's problem, so you're watching each other's back. Two, you might see a process for improvement or a place otherwise to grow your skills. Um, it's easy to just get, like, pigeonholed into a very narrow set of skills or, or uh, uh, I guess, work habits. But I think your curiosity and your ability to step back and look at bigger picture uh, scope of of uh, things, I think, is a valuable a valuable uh, tool to try and develop early. I know that as I've developed it more, it's just been ever more helpful in my career. And like you said, that can be hard to do because you get lost in the minutia and, and you forget that, oh yeah, there is this big picture. Are, are there any tools or strategies that you've found helpful over the years that have helped you? Um, just, I don't know, reminded yourself to, to take that step back and look big picture? Well, a couple of times getting to go out and visit vendors and seeing how their process works. Sometimes you'll see something that they're doing. And you realize like, wait a minute, is that what causes that? failure that I get every once in a while on a part oh, of the plan. Okay. Yeah. So, and this is another thing about stepping back and looking at the picture, you understand, you know, if you're somewhere in midstream of a process or, you know, a production build, 
you realize that everything in the stack tolerances ahead of you does make a difference as to what how well your part works. So I think you know this is part of the manufacturing skill set that's been learned over the years is to look at everything. Swim upstream really is kind of the key here. Is like go back and look at where it started, and uh, that's the thing I think I'm grateful about here with a small team is that we work closely together from everybody trying to do that initial conceptual development to see if a product's worth chasing. And we'll have roundtables or brainstorm sessions like going, how do I get past this element? This is a problem here. And with all the diverse and wonderful uh, skill sets that we've developed here in this team, uh, anybody with a set of eyes might look at it and say, bam, I think your problem's there. And everybody else goes, click. You know, it's it's kind of cool that way. Very cool. So, yeah. Well, Tim, I need to let you go. Um, before I do, how can how can people get a hold of you? <laughs> uh, I'm usually busy, and I don't do a lot of uh, like the uh, professional media, like LinkedIn. That's I at once once upon a time I had it, but I find that I'm just so engaged that uh, I'd rather go home and work on some of my future metal projects, which is you know I'm trying to develop an interest in blacksmith, or I got the interest is develop skill sets in blacksmithing and other metal forming uh, uh, capabilities. Oh, that sounds interesting. We, we might have to have you back for round two to talk about the, the metalworking <laughs> hobby. That sounds cool. No, it's fun. Uh, I've, lately, I've been working because uh, blacksmithing is a bit loud and kind of drives my wife nuts. I've been working on uh, <laughs> some smaller pieces. I've been working on uh, etching stainless steel, and I've actually made some good progress on that. So Very yeah. cool. That's yeah. terrific. Well, Tim, thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, uh, taking us through the, the Harley development and medical device reprocessing. This has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you um, being willing to, to come on the podcast and be a guest. Thank you. Well, thanks for letting me ramble. Appreciate it. Okay. You bet. <laughs> I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.